Father, we come before your throne of grace and we come to adore your son. As we were just singing, this invitation rings out to us who have experienced salvation, who have experienced redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we come and we adore, truly we have no one else to adore and forgive us when we do. Forgive us when we have competing figures, whether they're humans or things. I pray that you would help us to behold Christ this morning and to adore him for who he is and what he has done and what he had made us to be. We pray, bless this time in your word. Help me, Father, to clearly communicate the truth of this passage, that Christ would be exalted, we pray and ask. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Is it too early to greet each other with Merry Christmas? No. No. Amen. Some of you guys have been doing that before Thanksgiving, so uh, at least we waited. Uh, Till after. Uh, today, dear church, we are starting a new three-part series focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, which we have entitled The Perfect Christmas, really focusing on the perfect Christ. And uh, this morning, we will be looking at the first passage, which is located in Hebrews chapter 1. The title of the sermon is The Perfect Son. In December 1903, after many failed attempts, the Wright brothers were successful in getting their flying machine up in the air. And um, just so thrilled that they finally were able to fly, they telegraphed this message to their sister saying, quote, we have actually flown 120 feet. We will be home for Christmas. End of quote. Catherine, just excited, their sister, excited about this great news, takes this note and hurries it to the local editor of the local newspaper. He takes the note, he glances it, and he says, how nice, the boys will be home for Christmas. He totally missed the, the big news. <laughs> they had flown Finally, right? And I think as we year after year, those of you who um, have celebrated many Christmases, as we enter this new season, many of us even, we make the similar mistakes when we hear the word Christ and Christmas, right? We, we oftentimes don't think of Jesus and the implications of his miraculous birth. I mean, we... We don't pause to think what it really means that the perfect son of God had become a man, right? We love the Lord. We worship the Lord. And as the church gathers here Sunday after Sunday, we come in order to celebrate Christ. And just this morning, I want us to really do that. Come and adore Jesus Christ. It is appropriate for us, especially as Christians, to come and to once again grow in our adoration of our Lord. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we will be looking at the first three verses of Hebrews. We were just here in Hebrews a few weeks ago, looking at Hebrews chapter 10, this transitional point in Hebrews after 10 chapters of theology, he then flips and he says, okay, now that you know all this theology, now that you know that Jesus is great, now that you know that he is the supreme being of all, what are you going to do with it? And we looked at this passage, right, to encourage one another in the word of Christ. And today we'll be looking at the beginning of this theology section. In many ways, this this. Uh, beginning, this opening here functions as the outline of the entire book. It, it presents to us themes that will, will, will be then uh, driven deeper into as the 
writer, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, as he desires to explain the significance and the importance and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, this book, as you are well aware, it is written to remind people who Jesus is and what he has done. And in fact, what he continues to do today for his people so that his readers and us this morning, we would not slide back into legalism, that we would not slide back into ritualism or our old ways of doing things in order to appease our conscience so that we may feel good about ourselves. As you may remember from two weeks ago, some in the Jewish community to whom this book was written, they were thinking about going back. They were thinking about going back to Judaism because of severe persecution against Christians. And the author writes this letter, which he later on calls in in Hebrews chapter 13, the word of exhortation, the word of comfort, the word of encouragement. It's almost like he writes a sermon to encourage them. Look who you're worshiping. Consider afresh this Jesus and don't go back. You must listen to Christ and you must adore this Christ. And he writes because when you and I are reminded of Jesus, of who he is, what he has done, and even today, this very day, December 2021, he is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He continues to work and we benefit from his work. And when you understand all of that, The author says, can you really go back? Can you really retreat from this Christ? And he will argue throughout the book that you can't. You can't. And he will utilize all kinds of warnings here in Hebrews in order to spur them on and say, really, when you consider Christ, will you really go back? Hebrews chapter 1, 1, he opens up. This is one of the greatest openings in all of scripture, and some would argue in all of literature, probably would rival John 1.1, what we read earlier today. And the author writes, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir over all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he has made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than angels. And he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Consider what one of the commentators wrote concerning these verses. He says, our vision of Christ is limited. We are in danger of confining him to our restricted experience or limited knowledge. We need a vision of Christ with these immense cosmic dimensions, a Christ who transcends all our noblest thoughts about him and all our best experience of him. These first century readers would be less likely to turn from him in adversity if they had looked to him in adoration. The opening sentences of the letter are designed to bring them and us to our knees. Only then can we hope to stand firm on our feet. As we look at these verses here, I just want us to wrap our, our mind around this one central thought. And here's what the the author is calling, not just in these verses, but as he continues to explain further in the entire book, he says this, that we should listen to and we should adore the son because he is God's spokesperson and he is the final sacrifice. We should really listen to, pay attention to Christ because he is the final revelation and he is the final sacrifice. So as we look at this, we're going to break our passage into three simple points. Number one, adore Jesus, the final spokesperson. Number two, adore Jesus, the flawless son, and adore Jesus, the final sacrifice. 
The main truth here, as we look at number one, adore Jesus, the final spokesperson. The main proposition in the opening verses is God speaks. Look at verse one. Look at verse one with me. God has spoken. God speaks. Right off the bat, we learn something about God. The God we worship each and every day. Friends, we worship a speaking God. And this is very important to remember. God who voluntarily and intentionally communicates the divine truth so that his people would know him. It's a great attribute of God. Our God is a speaking God. And and I think, friends, we often take it for granted that our God speaks. And this is one of the attributes, this is one of key features that God always, always communicated to his people. He says, listen, I am a speaking God. I am different than any other gods you served beforehand. In fact, if you look at, with me to Isaiah 46, Isaiah 46, he uses, right, God uses as one of his arguments that he says, it diff- the fact that I speak, that is what differentiates me from all the other so-called gods. Hebrews 46, in verse five, he says this, to whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down, indeed, they worship it. They lift it up upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place, though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It can't speak back to you. It can't deliver him from his distress. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prayer from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. And what is the response? Listen to me. What is he trying to communicate here? That I speak. I declare. I say my purpose will be established. I am completely different. I speak. You can't see me. God is saying, but you can hear me. Your idols, you can see. You build them, but you can't hear them. Consider this. Just ask yourself this question. What if God did not speak? What if we were serving a God who could not communicate with his people? What would we know about God? Would we know anything at all? You see, when we consider this concept of knowledge, the content of all knowledge is God. He knows everything. He determines everything. He knows actual reality and potential reality. He absolutely knows everything and he determines everything. He alone knows all things. And we only know, friends, we only know that which he chooses to reveal. He knows all But he creates humans and he says, I'm going to reveal something to you. I'm going to speak to you so that you may know. And so he chooses to disclose himself in three particular ways. Number one, generally, two, primarily, and three, finally. According to Psalm 19 and Romans chapter 1, you know that God generally reveals himself, how? Through creation. Through creation. It universally, Romans 1, says that It reveals God's power and his nature so that no man can claim ignorance of God. 
But more specifically, the author here, if you go back, if you're in Isaiah, go back to Hebrews. The author of Hebrews here, he says that God has revealed himself specifically from long ago by speaking through the prophets. He spoke through the prophets long ago. Since creation, friends, man was in constant need of God's revelation. When we open up our Bibles, we see God speaking from the very beginning of history. Then God said, right? Then God said, and it's recorded for us in Genesis. He discloses to Adam, right, the divine mandate. And unless he would reveal the divine mandate to Adam, Adam would not know what to do, how to please the Lord, how to live with him, right? God spoke. And then we find out that after Adam, he speaks to Noah, he speaks to Abraham, and then to Moses, and then to David, and then through the rest of the prophets who prophesied both of the exile to come, and then during exile, how would any of them know about God if he did not speak? You see, friends, we take it for granted that when we, when we hold this version or any version of the Bible, when we read it every single day, this right here communicates to us that we have a unique God, right? God revealed himself to us, unlike anybody else. We are able to know because God discloses, both generally and specifically. And he says this, look with me back to Hebrews chapter one, that he spoke long ago to the fathers in many portions and in many ways. He spoke in in various uh, epochs or ages of redemptive history and the way he spoke was progressively revealing more of himself and more of his will as time went on, right? God spoke in the olden days to the fathers in parts, in fragments, right? In many portions, it says, right? A word here and then a word there and then some more revelation. He progressively revealed the plan of redemption through Genesis to Malachi, All, friends, was not revealed at the same time. No one prophet had the full extent of God's revelation. Many prophets, many portions. And he says he spoke in many ways, right? Through various dreams and and visions and um, prophecies. He revealed his will through angels that he sent. Each prophet received God's revelation And as they received God's revelation, they wrote it down. And it is preserved by the Spirit in what we know to be called the Scripture. The Scripture. Friends, understand first and foremost that the God who we come before today, this very moment, the God who calls us into his worship is the one who speaks to his people. He spoke to our fathers through the prophets, and he still speaks to us today. That is why we come here Sunday after Sunday and open up God's word. That's why preaching matters. He still speaks to us today. He doesn't give us new revelation. I don't come here. Pastor Mike or Pastor Jan, they don't come up here and say, friends, I have received new revelation from the Lord. No, this canon is closed. That's it. What we do is we go back to God's revelation. We open it up. We study it. And by the Spirit, he illumines these words that are written down and preserved for us in Scripture and helps us to apply them today. But the author here, he doesn't stop there and he doesn't say, well, you Jews, you got the Old Testament. You got this stuff that God revealed through the prophets. That's great. Over 1,500 years. No, he 
continues to go on. And he says that although God spoke specifically and progressively, the final and the more superior way he spoke is through his son. He says in verse two, in these last days, what are the last days? Well, the last days we know them as the days between the original Christmas when Jesus was born and the day when he will come back. So right now, today, we are living in the last days. It doesn't speak to the, the, the quantity, right? The last days. And so we're really close to his coming. It, it's a qualitative term in these last days because Jesus had come. He spoke by his son. Notice this transition from plural to singular. He spoke in the prophets, in the prophets, many to now singular, one son. And notice the transition from progressive to final. God is done speaking. In fact, he says, in these last days, he has spoken. He's done speaking to us. Completed action. He has spoken. Friends, Jesus is God's final spokesperson. If you discard and ignore Jesus Christ, there is no more for God to tell you. That's it. Whatever he says, it, 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 it stands. It's final. It's perfect. And it's the greatest because of who this person, of who this son is. What are the implications for us as we read verses 1 and 2? You know, God, friends, sent a final messenger who has the final word, who is the final word, Jesus Christ. The one who came before, right, Jesus, they were speaking of Jesus. They were trying to figure out, as, as 1 Peter, for instance, chapter 1 says, as they wrote down this prophecy about Jesus, they were going back and they were trying to determine what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The very prophets who were revealing God's word, they were the ones who were going back to their own letters and saying, what in the world does this mean? Who is this person? And Jesus arrives and he is the final one. He is the final one. Remember the context. Remember the issues here that these, de- that these readers are dealing with, okay? Some of them are tempted to go back to Judaism, to the old ways of doing things, to the old covenant practices. And the author is just sounding the alarm and says, no, the final word is in God's son, If you're going to read and if you're going to listen to the scriptures, and I know Jews that you do, you revere God's word, you revere scripture, then you've got to listen to this final spokesperson. I mean, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, I say to you, the many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You're you're a blessed bunch. During the time of Christ, we are a blessed bunch. I mean, do you remember the father's proclamation about his son during transfiguration? When Jesus showed up, his face was shining. There was, you know, Moses with him, Elijah with him. They're sitting there, they're communicating. And the father says, this is my son. Listen to him. Why did that matter at that particular point? Well, it's because you have Moses who gave the law. Moses who gave the first five books of the Old Testament, right? They were memorized, they were obeyed. And and Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of God and God the Father says, this son right here, you listen to him. You listen to him. He matters. What he says, right, ultimately matters. And listen, those who came before him who wrote the Old Testament did not have a revelation that was any less significant or or true, right? Our author's point here isn't that the words spoken by Jesus, God's son, they somehow cancel out the spoken words of the prophets. Instead, his point is that the words spoken to us by the son complete and they fulfilled the word spoken by the prophets. He is the final word. 
So he encourages this group that, that's, that is suffering and they're wondering, man, is Jesus worth it, right? Confessing Jesus in the marketplace, um, it presents all kinds of disadvantages, difficulties. Should I continue to remain faithful or should I just retreat from, from confessing Christ and the author says, don't spurn Jesus by failing to trust him and him alone? Don't spurn Jesus by retreating or, or appraising him as anything less than the way, the truth, and the life. Don't spurn Jesus by looking beyond his word for answers to your life's questions. It's all in here, friends. This is it. Look to the Son and to his word as the climax and the completion and the fulfillment of God's revelation. We are a blessed bunch, friends. God has spoken in his word. Jesus' very words are written right here. And we do well when we open up and when we study this truth so that we may worship Christ and may reflect him in our lives. Adore the son as God's final spokesperson. There are a bunch of implications here. It matters because you know, we need to preach Christ. We need to preach his word, right? No revelation that comes extra, that, that is added here to this, to this revealed word matters. Your friends, right, who, who, who may come to you and confess, I had a revelation from God and therefore you ought to obey. It does not matter, friends. This matters. The word of God matters ultimately. It's recorded for us. So Jesus is the final spokesperson and he came and he says, repent. He came and he said, repent, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And when we understand that this is it, he's the final authority. He's greater than the Old Testament prophets. He's greater than Moses. He is greater than Elijah. He is greater than angels as he will go on to say. He's greater than the Levitical priests. He is greater than all. You come and adore him as God's final spokesperson. But here's the question. Why should we listen to him? Right? That's what Hebrews are wondering. Why should I listen to this man? So what? Like, how do I know he's God's final spokesperson? And, and, and the author of Hebrews, he lists several characteristics that describe the greatness and the superiority of Jesus over everyone else. And he says we should listen and we should adore Jesus because he is the perfect son. He is the greatest prophet. He is the flawless son, which brings us to number two, adore Jesus. Listen to him, the flawless son. A few characteristics here. He goes on at the end of verse two and he says, whom he appointed heir over all things. You listen to Jesus because the son is the heir over all things. The father appointed Jesus, his son, to be heir. This word heir, it comes from the word lot. Okay, so back in the day, if you were a family of five, right? Father, mother, and three children, the firstborn, he would get the double portion, the double lot. And so he would get 50% of your inheritance and the other two would split up the rest. They rest 50%, so 25 and 25. The more sons you have, the greater the split. So you may end up with some of the families that they had back then. You may end up with, you know, 2% of, uh, of inheritance. It's great, but it's not 22 and it's certainly not 100. Because look what it says here. God has only one son. And we are told he gets everything. Jesus gets everything. Isn't that amazing? The prophets who came before him, they were not the sons, but Jesus is. That's why you listen to them. Jesus gets everything. All dignity, all honor, all authority because he is the perfect son of God. He comes on the scene and in Matthew 10, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. I have it all. All authority later on in Matthew is given to me. The inheritance of the son is not just limited to earth or, or even to this universe, but everything, all things and all things in Greek, it means all things. 
everything. There's nothing that the father keeps or gives it to someone else. No, everything is given to the son. Jesus owns everything. He owns everything because he is the creator, as we shall soon see, but he's also the perfect redeemer. In Acts chapter two, during uh, the Pentecost, Peter comes out and he preaches the sermon. And in this sermon, he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Who? This Jesus whom you crucified. And because this Lord and Messiah is the possessor of all things, friends, radical implications for us, radical. What does that mean for us? If, if this son is appointed as heir of all things. What does that mean? What does it have to do with us? Well, listen, if you believe in Jesus, if you are, as we were just celebrating, united to Jesus through his atoning death, you become the possessor with him. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, the spirit himself testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Friends, we get it all. I love what what, uh, one commentator said, John Trapp. He says, be married to this heir and have all. You want to have all? You got to know the one who is the heir of all things. Why do you listen to Jesus? Well, because he is the heir. He possesses everything. He owns everything. Why should you listen to Jesus? Why should you adore Jesus? He says he is the creator. He is the creator through whom also he made the world. And this agrees with what we just read in John chapter one, verse three, right? All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. It's like when you swear before the court, you know, I will speak the truth, what? The whole truth and nothing but the truth. You just say the same thing three different ways. This is exactly what John is saying. He made all things and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is the creator of all things. Why should you listen to Jesus, Jews? Why should you listen to to Jesus, Gentiles? You know what? Because he made you. That's why he's your creator. He made everything around you. In fact, this word worlds, right? He made the ages or or time and history and everything that is possessed within. He made it all. He's your creator. Jesus is the Lord of history. Why submit to this final spokesperson? Because Jesus is worthy of being heard and loved and adored. He created you. Remember some of the Jews, um, they're thinking, why, why should I stick around with Jesus when I can go back to the proven things? Like I can go back to the temple. I see the temple. I can submit these sacrifices. They're tangible. They're actual. I can put some kind of faith and hope in what I see. I can go back to this. And plus, I don't have to deal with what every Christian is dealing right now. And the author of Hebrew writes, and he says, listen, friend, Moses didn't, right, create this tabernacle. Listen, Solomon didn't, you know, create this temple. God created you and he created everything. He is the creator. Everything that came into being is him. He is worthy. Stop and think, he says. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He is the creator, therefore listen to him. He goes on and he says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. The sun is the radiance in in chapter, in verse three. He is the radiance. Remember Moses on the mountain? Right, He goes up to talk with God and he sees the glory of God and it begins to reflect on his face. He comes down and his face is shining. And Jesus, on the other hand, reflects the very glory of God from inside out. It's shining from a very specific source. Think about this. If If I were to shine a flashlight here right now, 
right? You can distinguish between the rays of the flashlight and the actual source, the flashlight, right? And as long as my flashlight is on, right, you can't see the separation. Like you can see the rays and they lead right back to this flashlight. You can't really separate the source from the light. And this is exactly what, what he says here. The sun is radiating the glory of the father. That's what we read in, in, in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and it dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. So why do you listen? Why do you adore Jesus? Because he is God whose glory shines forth. But there is more. Why is his glory shining out? And it is this, that Jesus is the exact image or the exact representation. Moses was not the exact image and the exact representation of God. Jesus is. He bears the stamp of God's nature. And he is the exact representation of his nature. That's why he shines forth. If you had a ring and like a, a candle, a soft wax candle. And if you take this ring and if you smash it against this soft candle, you would see an imprint of this ring. And that's exactly what he says. The ring, right? The source, the ring matches exactly the imprint. So it goes with the father and with the son. The, this word here, representation, it's character. Right? It's exact duplicate, exact nature of God. You can't see God, but didn't Jesus say to someone who asked, hey, show us the Father. And Jesus said, listen, I've been with you for so long. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why did he say that? It's because he is the exact representation of God. Ken Hughes says, Jesus is a superior revelation of God. When we see him, we know just what the God of the universe is like. We know how he thinks. We know how he thought, talks. We know how he relates to people. God has spoken in his son. It is his ultimate communication, his final word, his consummate eloquence. Oh, the superiority of the son. And this is what he wants us to behold and to think. But he doesn't stop there. He gives us one more and he says the son is not only the creator and the exact representation of God's nature. He is in fact the sustainer of all things. He is the sustainer. He's actively sustaining. And here once again, the author of Hebrews, he emphasizes the equality with God. Because remember who he's talking to, Hebrews. They know the Old Testament. Every Jew believed that Yahweh, right, kept the entire universe in the hollow of his hand, Isaiah chapter 40 says. He keeps it all together. But here the author says that it is Christ's present role to keep everything in his hand, and it is his active role. That's what Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus holds all the atoms together and is bringing all things to its ultimate end. I want you to see something. At the end of verse three, he says, upholds all things by the power. This, this word upholds, okay? It's a very important word because it doesn't mean that Jesus is just this static atlas. You've seen the picture, right? Atlas who stands there in place, and he's holding the world, the weight of the world on his shoulder. And so God, in Christ, who created all things, Jesus now is just, you know, he's just trying to balance it all. Right? Statically, he's just standing there and trying to figure out, okay, how much longer, God? <laughs> right? Am I going to have to bear? That's not what this word means. What this word means is that by upholding, he is carrying. He's not static. He is in motion. And in motion, he brings everything, all the affairs of mankind to its glorious end. Okay? Jesus 
is God who holds all things in his hand, including those who are reading this letter. In Christ's hand, the author encourages them that there is security no matter what opposition or what persecution. And friend, this is relevant for us this morning because Jesus is not simply upholding things statically, but he is moving things to its ultimate fulfillment. Do you believe that? That the God who created everything is the God of providence who has an ultimate end, goal, You know, today, things are so hectic. How many of you remember what 2019 looked like? Exactly. All of you guys are like, 2019 is just ages, worlds ago, <laughs> right? 2019. And so 2020, this chaotic year. 2021, everybody is just like, yeah, 2020 was terrible. Let's bring in, ring in the new year, 2021. It's going to be all great. And all of a sudden, it's in some cases worse than 2020. Is your world unstable, friends, whether it involves politics or maybe even your own family? As you might be, wondering how you'll make it through and you're wondering, man, if 2021 is this bad and my kids are, you know, nine right now, my kids are six, four, what will happen in 20 years? Will they have a college to go to? Right? Will there even be faith? Like these are radical questions that many of us are asking and thinking through and, 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 it's sort of induces fear in us, right? What's going to happen? And it paralyzes us. And yet, friends, when we come to Hebrews chapter one, and we, we read about the glorious Savior, this perfect and flawless Savior, who not only created everything, but is carrying all the affairs, including 2020 and 2021, and your family situation, and everything else. He is literally carrying it to its glorious completion. There is a reason why he is doing what he's doing. He has not tuned out. It's not like he dialed it up and left and said, I'll see you in, you know, 20 something. I've determined the day. Nobody knows. I'll come back, figure it out. No, that's not what he's saying. He is actively involved in every single detail of your life. Friend, you need to be encouraged by this savior. He is in total. He's in full control. Let me ask you a question, a little quiz here. True or false? Jesus will be anxious about the state of affairs in America or your home this December. You guys get the point, right? He, he can't be. He's the son of God who determines the end from the beginning. He declares what will take place and he's accomplishing all of these things. Will you turn away from Christ and go somewhere else? That's what the author is arguing. This son matters. He is flawless. He is perfect. He is God and worthy of your adoration. He is sovereign over all things. As you read the news and make sense of your own situation, remember, child of God, Christian, the providence of Jesus Christ. He has a plan. The father has determined a plan and Jesus will make sure that that plan succeeds no matter what today we are going through. And so he wants us to see this perfect son. He's the flawless son who's superior to all who came before him. With the original Christmas, the perfect son of God had appeared to be the final revelation of God. He has spoken and his words are recorded for us in scripture. He is worthy of our attention. In fact, that's why we're here this morning, isn't it? Right? And we're just here to be reminded of our Savior. We are here because Jesus is worthy of our attention. To be reminded of his significance in our life. But he doesn't stop there. And he says, because the greatness of Jesus, right? It, greatness of Jesus is not only seen, rather, in his person, but in his work. So not, not only that he's flawless son, 
but he's also, number three, the final sacrifice. And so the call in all of Hebrews is to adore this son as the final sacrifice. The end of verse three here, it tells us when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I just want us to quickly highlight this. Uh, The author of Hebrews, he will spend much time discussing the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And in fact, two weeks from today, we will spend some time in Hebrews chapter five and we will specifically deal with the end of verse three, so to speak, as he unpacks the implication of what it means that Christ is our priest. But today he says that he had made perfection or uh, purification rather for sins. He offered something better than the blood of bulls and goats. The very blood and the very bulls and goats that the original readers were probably tempted to go back to. He says that his sacrifice is better. Right? He offered the sacrifice on behalf of God's people, God's elect. And notice that he offered a single sacrifice for sin. And what is that sacrifice? It's his very own blood and body. Later on in Hebrews 10, he will say, and he having offered one sacrifice for sin, sat down at the right hand of God. In two verses later, he says, for by one offering, he offered up for all times, he perfected rather, for all times those who are sanctified. And I want you to notice the contrast here. Look at your Bibles again. It says that Jesus is continually, for he is, right? He is continually the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. It happens continually. He continually upholds present active, right? He upholds all things by the word of his power. But listen to this. There's a switch here. When he gave himself up on the cross, Jesus shed his blood once and for all with a single point, right, in time. One time. He doesn't always offers up himself. He doesn't always perform purification for sins. One time and one time was enough to perfect all those who believe in Christ. I was going to mention something. When it comes to the sacrifice of Christ, no boosters are necessary. You can deal with it. It's effective, friends. He doesn't come back and say, man, it's been 2,000 years. I may, have, I may need to, you know, um, I don't know. I may need to come back and, and strengthen the immunity from sin. No, that's it done. One time, he is done. And if you believe in Christ, you are forever cleansed. And the second Jesus sat down, the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament, right? They, all the priests in that priesthood, they all stood daily. He tells us in in Hebrews chapter 10. They stood daily and they offered up sacrifices. This was this endless cycle on repeat. Every single year they would do that. But when Jesus offered himself, he offered himself one time and sat down. You know, after a long day of work, right? You look forward to sitting down. Why? Because your day is complete. You're done for today. It's time to rest. And this is what Jesus did. He sat down. That means he completed. No priest before Jesus ever sat down. There were no chairs in the tabernacle. And Jesus sat down because it was it, it was completed. So the message to his readers and to us this morning, don't go back to other things. Don't return only to grasp at shadows. We have the real deal. Friends, we need to continue to listen to Jesus. We need to continue to grow in our adoration and our love for Jesus. Believe in him. Trust him. He is the heir. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the very essence of God. He is the ultimate victor. And this is what we celebrate, the perfect son as we enter this new season. You know, as we close this week, I was reminded of a, of a World War II story history. It's true. On uh, August 15, 1945, the emperor of Japan, Emperor Hirohito, he did two things that were completely unprecedented in Japanese history and culture before him. First, the emperor of Japan 
He was always, all emperors, not just this one, but all emperors, they were considered for centuries to be divine figures, gods in their own right. God-like monarchs. And one of the implications of this Japanese national theology at that time was that the emperor's voice was rarely heard, if ever. Nobody heard from him. He always communicated through messengers. He needed something to be done. He had a goal. He had a plan. He would communicate to his messengers, and they would go out. And right Before August, they never heard the emperor's voice over the radio waves. And on this day, a person, right, who believed himself to be divine, who believed himself to be God, and was believed by all the masses to be divine, he breaks this precedent and he addresses the nation of Japan directly. Not through servants, but through the radio. That's the first thing. The second thing he did is even more shocking than the first. This divine monarch communicated a message that many were surprised by. If God was going to communicate a message to you, what would you expect? He communicated a message of unconditional surrender. It was a call for his people to lay down arms when this king, when this God, when this monarch spoke, he issued a message of defeat. We're done. We don't stand a chance. Friends, when, when our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God in human flesh, spoke in the last days to his people, he issued not a message of defeat, but of victory. It is all over. A message that through his person, redemption has been accomplished and the forces of sin, death, and devil have been vanquished. And the way he accomplished that was he became God's final spokesperson and he became God's final sacrifice. And so for us this morning and this season, we ought to announce And we ought to acknowledge this great big news. Jesus had come. He has accomplished all things. Therefore, adore him and friends continue to adore him. Father, we thank you for this message of truth. We thank you for your son, perfect son of God, who perfectly submitted to your will and did what no other man before him could do. No other sacrifices need to be offered because we have the perfect sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so encourage us this morning, man. We who fail miserably day after day, we sin. Help us to look to Christ and find reasons to rejoice. And let this gospel be the motivation for us to go and to love Christ and to adore him and to tell everybody else in our space about the love of Christ. Help us not to mess around with competing revelations as if there are those. Nothing competes with the Son. Help us to trust him, Lord, and build us here this morning and this week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.